Okay. <laughs> I'm glad you're here. Um, so, so we're at we're in uh, we're at the we're finishing up Sefer Breshis, the the book of creation, um, which is which is which is a, a milestone um, because you know let's just talk about getting older for a moment. Uh, society itself is is so so uh, anti aging. You know, they, they, there's this sort of cult of youth that's kind of been going on since, I think, uh, since the Greeks who were, like, running around naked in the Olympics and things like that. And, um, and, and it, it just seems that, um, that, that old age or, or whatever it is, that, that, that sort of, that, that state somehow seems to be just increasingly, um, uh, disregarded and, and discredited by society, but um, but but aging, I think, is is really exciting um, because uh, you sort of like, I mean, we're all we're all basically in the middle of this like grand mystery right now, life history. It's like this this amazing mystery, and as you get older, if you if you go through life. Um, in an intelligent way, you get more and more clues as to what is actually going on, where you are, what's what's being transacted, and 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 that's that's exciting. So so the concept of aging in Torah is is worth taking a look at, um, because we actually have a halacha that if an older person walks into the room, you're actually supposed to stand, or at least you know get get you know get up a little bit from your your seat. Um, and and that's that's actually a halacha, and and what's interesting about that is that it doesn't that that just by virtue of a person reaching a certain age, they become worthy of that level of honor. That is, even if they're not a wise person. So 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 in other words, there is a an accomplishment that's being um, sort of like accorded to just getting through life. And if you think about it, that, that actually makes a lot of sense because it's really hard to get through life. I remember um, when I was just kind of starting out in terms of observance and everything like that, I saw like this old man, he was probably in his 80s, and I thought, wow, you know, I like envy that man. He, he got through life, you know, and he kept all of his values together. And that that is considered something... Um, like uh, really worthy and so honorable that you would actually even rise before an older person just by virtue of the fact that they that they that they accomplished to the point that they they made it to this age. That in itself is is something is a triumph. So 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 let's go a little bit deeper because actually the concept of um, aging is is sort of like there's a there's a there's a double edge to this, this, this idea. Um, and uh, there's a, there's a, a Kutzker Torah that I always think about and is sort of like, it's like one of these life-changing Torahs if you, if you embrace it, if you, if you like, um, really try to understand it. So the, the Medrash says that one who grows old is like an ape. And so it sounds very insulting, like, wow, we're calling old people apes. Wow, this is really bad. But but obviously that's not that's not what it means since we just say that we we venerate people who who uh, who who accomplish um, 
in terms of just uh, living life um, and getting to a certain point in life. So we can't just be, you know, mocking them. So what does it mean on a deeper level? Or what does it just actually mean at all? So the Katsukarebi explains that, that the nature of an ape is to imitate. And in fact, in English, the word to ape means to imitate, like to ape one's gestures. So that, that this is such a kind of universal concept that it's actually made it into English even. So, so now let's revisit what the rabbis are saying, that one who imitates, one who grows old is, is, is one who imitates. So the Katsuka Rebbe develops it further. He says, he says like this, that, that, and I'm just fleshing out his words right now, but basically what happens to virtually all of us is that we reach a certain point in our lives where we decide that we've, we've got it down, that, that we figured it out. And then at that point, we go through the rest of our lives imitating ourselves, imitating who we were. Do you hear that? It's, these are actually, these are absolutely devastating words. I mean, that a person can live most of their life imitating the person who they once were without even realizing it. And this is how most of us actually go through our lives. So that is considered by the Torah the definition of old age. So in other words, old age has nothing to do with numbers. A person could theoretically be old at the age of 11, or they could be young at the age of 90. It just is a question of whether you are copying yourself and copying your old ways. Um, this is, this is one of the, um, you know, countless additional recommendations for learning Torah throughout your life. Because Torah is constantly challenging you to think anew and to reevaluate and to value every circumstance and to see every single moment in your life as something new and as a unique sort of kaleidoscope configuration um, to seize on the uniqueness of the situation and to approach it in a novel way. And, and so Torah actually keeps us young. And I know that uh, I mentioned to you before that one of the games that, that I play and my family plays, and it's, I recommend it, it's, um, it's, it's, it's really cool and it's very easy to do. Just every Friday night, just ask yourself, where were you last Friday night? <laughs> And you'll be astounded at how long ago that last Friday night actually seems, you know? Sometimes it seems like two weeks ago, three weeks ago. You can't believe how much living you've done. But, but, but there are these moments of reflection that have to take place in order for you to appreciate, like, what actually is going on in your life. Um, and that sort of brings us into where we are now in terms of, in terms of the Torah. Um, you know, b before we get to that, I just want to just share one kind of bit of imagery that kind of came to me just, uh, just a, a short while ago, but hopefully I'll be able to communicate it. Do, do any of you know this um, uh, jewelry store in the old city of Jerusalem called Hodaya? You know that? It's kind of famous. And they, they, they have a specialty, hammered silver. 
And I don't know if you've ever seen that look. It's really, it's very, well, I guess everything is subjective, but to me it's very beautiful. It's sort of like they shape something, but it's got all these like, like hammer, hammer pings in it or whatever you'd call it. And so it gives it this very sort of like interesting texture, but it's, it's very beautiful at the same time. You see, at a certain point, I think that what, what we have to, we have to commit to something in life. And, and it's, 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 a very, it's a very scary thing for people to commit to things because um, we, we value um, flexibility and we hate parochialness. We hate, um, we hate orthodoxy, actually. Orthodox, I mean, I, I, I think the idea that, you know, our path is called Orthodox Judaism. It's like, you know, someone told me the, not too long ago that they, they call it classic Judaism. <laughs> that, you know, like classic Coke, you know, like I'm a classic Jew. And it's like, I, I think that's, I, I like that, you know. Or the Orthodox, oh yes, I'm a narrow-minded Jew. Yes, that's what I stand for, you know. It's like, what? You know, Orthodox really is like in English anyway. Or the word Orthodox never appears in the Torah, by the way. Neither does reform or conservative. These are all sociological and anthropological terms that have been thrown on historically to describe just different movements within within the religion. But the word orthodoxy has no has no uh, specialness to it. It has no kedusha to it. You know what I mean? So I don't feel um, sacrilegious, you know, mocking it. You know, we have we have. We have a path, which is the path that we've had for thousands of years, and that's our path. Relatively speaking, within the last few hundred years, there have been some offshoots that are kind of doing their own thing, and, you know, God bless them. But, I mean, the, the religion is the religion. It's just Torah Judaism. That's what it is, you know? So, so, but the idea of committing to something, you see, you see, I, I, I think that this will make sense if you think about it. We, we prize flexibility. We, we do. And we want to have all of our options open. But at a certain point, if you keep all of your options open forever, you stand for nothing. You know, that it's actually at a certain, at a certain stage, if you think of like a, a, a bell curve, at the beginning of the process, keeping your options open is very wise because it allows you to pivot and to make the most of certain situations. At a further point, though, it means that there's a lack of vision, right? And then all of a sudden, who are you? What are you? I don't know. What do I stand for? I don't know anymore. I don't know. Um, so, so later on, in terms of our lives, um, hopefully we've heard a narrative that makes enough sense that we go, okay, that's, that's the one I'm going to walk down. Um, so why did I bring up this thing of Hodiah? Because it's sort of like, imagine you're doing this, um, you're doing a certain sculpture, right? And you're, you're sort of like hammering it. Like, that, these, this is life. You know, we, 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 we face certain tests, certain levels of um, adversity and things like that. And they, they sculpt us into who we are today. Um, so if, if, 
if, if you have a vision for who you are or for who you want to be, the circumstances of life will actually forge a, like, a, like a hammered version of, 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 of your identity. And there will be a beauty to it because there's a structure and a vision which informs who you are and what you want to be. And so that sort of texture around you, that hammered quality, if you will, sort of like creates a certain beauty for what it is that you represent. Whereas if you don't have a vision or sort of like a, a, a thing that you're standing for at all, you're basically just this hammered piece of like, you're, 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 you're a piece of like bent rubble, basically. You know, because there's no shape to it, because there's nothing that informed all the trials and tribulations. So, so I was thinking, I'll, I'll put it another way. Like, you know, we talk about, you know, sometimes you, you like hear people talking about their journey, right? Like, this is my spiritual journey, or this is my journey, or tell me about your journey, and things like that. But I was thinking about that, that there's a very, very small step between being on a journey and just wandering. You know, like, I don't think we just want to be wandering. I think that we want to be on a journey. And what's the difference between wandering and being on a journey? And I think that the answer is having a real vision and committing to a vision, right? Then, then you're actually in the process of realizing something, right? Whereas the other thing is you're just sort of like, you know, checking out different things, right? And it can, from the outside, look like a journey, and it might even be the makings of a journey, but then ultimately the question is, what have you committed to? Because that will be the decisive difference between being on a journey or just kind of wandering through life. So, so I told you that, that, that a lot of this has to do with our ability to sort of like reflect. And I think that all of us should challenge ourselves in the, in, in, to, to have an explanation of, of life. Um, meaning to say, I think that everyone, by the time they're, you know, in college, certainly, or out of college, certainly, should be able to say, this is why the world was created. This is why I exist. This is what I want to do or try to do or the values that I want to inform my life with. And I think that, that, that if a person says, okay, and, and whether or not there's an afterlife, I think all these things are, are things everyone should have a responsibility. There should be like, you know, you know, like you have the SATs, like they should have like, like everyone should have to answer these questions. Even if they say, you know what, the world exists by accident. There is no afterlife. And I exist in order to pursue my own pleasure. You know what, if a person actually says those things, I think that's better than just saying, I don't know, I don't know, I never think about it, I don't know, well, you know, what, whatever it is. In other words, at least have something to work from. 
at least have something to work from. And then you can say, okay, well, do I still believe this? Right? Because, again, this mindset of sort of being in this place of, I don't know, or I want to keep all of my options open, there's a very um, insidious Yetzirah, uh, meaning to say negative inclination, which, which, which presents itself to us as sort of like something very positive, which is I'm keeping all of my options open. But really what it's doing is stopping us from actually saying how we really feel and expressing what our actual vision is. Like we might actually have an incredibly self-centered hedonistic vision, you know, if we wanted to admit to it, and then we should actually admit to it. And then we can evaluate it from there and say, do I actually believe that? Is that really what it's all about? And then, uh, but do you hear how that's so much more constructive than saying, I don't know, maybe, I don't know, yeah, could be, could be, could be, I don't know. You know, I was talking with someone yesterday, a very special, right, righteous person, right? And he was telling me about his, his Jewish background and things like this. He was saying that, you know, over the years, you know, he grew up a certain way and then at a fairly young age that he actually committed to a, a Torah path and his parents actually weren't even in that place. And so from a very young age, you know, he, he, he was telling me that he, his parents were like very cool with the fact that he was making certain decisions. And even though they weren't making those same type of decisions, but nonetheless, they were like really respecting his decisions. So for instance, like they would go out for Chinese food to a non-kosher restaurant in Chinatown on like Sunday nights, right? And at a certain point, like at a young age, like at 11 or something like that, he decided, you know what, I'm, I'm keeping kosher. I'm not doing that. Bless you. And they were like, okay, great. We're not going to go out for Chinese food anymore. Right? So in other words, the parents could be like, you know, you stay at home. We're doing our thing. You know, you're not telling us what to do. But they were like very respectful of him. But at the same time, he wasn't playing any trips on them. So he wasn't like, you know, saying we have to do this and we have to do that. So as a result, he became, he became very, very flexible and then, and, um, or accommodating to other, uh, other people and other, other paths while he pursued his own path. And then he said, and then he said to me, because, you know, you know, I don't know if I'm right. And I said, no, you are right. And then he like looked at me in this very shocked way. I said, you are right. We say Torah to emet. We say that there actually is a truth to the world, that the Torah is truth. And that it's okay for you to be right and for you to be accommodating to other people and allow them to find their way. In other words, you don't have to not know whether you're right or not in order to be very gracious and loving to other people. You can be right and you can also be very accepting of other people. And then he said, but, you know what, but let's say there's this guy, you know, he said Joe, right? Joe could stand for anyone. He said, how do I know Joe? And in his version, um, Joe wasn't necessarily Jewish and certainly wasn't keeping the Torah. He says, how do I know that Joe isn't better than me? I said to him, Joe can be better than you and you can still be right. <laughs> in other words... This person, whoever he is, you know, this human being, whoever he is, might have qualities and may have done um, acts of, you know, 
you know, greatness that in fact exceed yours, right? So he might be a more accomplished person than you, but the Torah is still right. Like, why is there any contradiction between him being, you know, a more accomplished person than you are and the Torah still being right? So, so I, for some reason, and, you know, he was, he's a highly, highly intelligent person who I was talking to, you know, but he sort of like looked at me like, oh, you know, I never really kind of thought through that, that there can be, that there can be this concept of truth in the world, and yet that, that, that can coexist with me being extremely accepting and flexible with other people, and also the concept that other people might, you know, even from other traditions, may have done way more than I have. I mean, Mother Ch- Teresa was washing lepers. I don't think I've even met a leper, much, you know, much less like gotten out a soap and washcloth around one of them. You know, she was like kissing their feet and whatnot. You know, and that's, that's better than me. That's way better than me. You know, really, honestly, you know. You know, but, but at the same time, it's like I would say that the Torah is correct. You know, even though she's washing lepers. So, so, so she can be way better than me, you know. And at the same time, the Torah is still right. So, so again, in order... At, at a certain point, it, at a certain point, if you're, if you're, if you're older, right? If, and by older, I mean, you know, you know, college or, or past college or whatever it is. At a certain point, if you're older, I think that you, we, we must demand of ourselves that we should be able to say, why was the world created? Is there, is there a meaning to life? Why am I here? What am I supposed to do? You know, I heard Reb Shlomo say that, that in this day and age, it's a criminal act to be superficial. You know, this is like, this is, I think, basic human responsibility. Like, God gives us a life. We have a certain, we have a certain base level of responsibility that we have to have and knowing why that this world was created seems to me like a fairly base level of responsibility. You know, not to have that. Like to be 60 or 70 and go, you know, I don't know why there's a world and I don't know why I exist. You know, I, I think that's embarrassing. I think that's really embarrassing. And I, I almost think that it's disrespectful to, to the world itself. Whatever your explanation is of why there's a world, by the way. Whatever explanation you come up with. I think it's disrespectful. You know? Like, can you imagine seeing, like, this epic movie and going, like, yeah, I don't even know how that got made. How did it even get made? Well, I'll tell you how it got made. There was a writer, and there was a director, and there was a lot of actors, and they worked really, really, really hard, and someone spent a lot of money, you know, to stage the whole thing. That's, that's how it got made. Oh, so there is an answer. Yeah, there's a very clear, definite answer. See, I, 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 I marvel, I marvel at the fact that highly intelligent people look at the world and say that this was an accident. I marvel at that passing for intelligence. I marvel at that. I marvel at that. 
And I further marvel at how they can look at the more God-centric point of view and call that ignorant. Like, this to me is at the height of arrogance. That you can look at this world, call it an accident, and call people who don't call it an accident ignorant. It's like, it's like chutzpah sheva chutzpah. Chutzpah on top of chutzpah. I mean, you know, you, you know the, 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 the famous story, and there, there are a couple of versions of this story, and, you know, pick whichever version you like, but I like this version, and, and I wish I could tell you the, the source of it. I, I, I don't know, but it, one of our greatest rabbis, and some people are, are, are gathering to ask him about whether, there's, whether God exists or not, and um, this is hundreds of years old, this, this, uh, this, this, this example. And, and while they're waiting for him, he's in his study or whatever it is, they're looking at this unbelievable piece of calligraphy, some poem or whatever it is, let's say it's a poem, that, that's written in the, in the most beautiful way. And they're like, wow, you know, who wrote this? And the lettering is so beautiful and everything like this. And so when he comes out, they ask him. And he goes, oh, um, the uh, bottle of ink spilled and it poured that onto the page. And they, they say, what are you talking about? Like, that's, that's absolutely impossible that that could have happened. Look, I mean, like, just think it through. Like, each of these words makes sense in, in order, right? How could it be that, that ink should spill? Maybe ink could spill and maybe it could make a letter or maybe somehow it could make a word, but that it would make word after word that all makes sense and expresses itself in the most beautiful, deep way? And that everything is written so uniformly and beautifully? It's impossible that ink would spill and do such a thing. So he said, so now look at the world. Do you think that the whole world, just, just the world is that example times a trillion times, times the infinite. And you're saying that this just sort of like assembled itself? Right? I mean, it's, 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 when you think of it in, in terms of that level of simplicity, it's bizarre to think otherwise. It's bizarre to think otherwise. So this is what I mean. This is what I mean. So then you say, okay, so then there's got to be a creator. Then, well, well then, why did the, then why did the creator create? And what do I have to do with it? And is there, do I have a role in this? And, you know, and the more you get into the study of, like, nature, nature is so awesome, like, how all the different animals interact. I mean, the, the, the symbiosis is like absolutely amazing how interconnected the ecosystem is. And, I, you know, I could give you examples, but none pop into my head this moment. But, but amazing, amazing levels of, of, of um, uh, interconnectedness. And so now human beings, which have such a dominant footprint on... On, 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 on the ecosystem, on, on the world, somehow we don't have our own? See, the, the amazing thing is, is that we have, one of the aspects of free choices, we have the ability to deny God. But that doesn't make God disappear. <laughs> and if you want to understand how loving and how patient God is, Look at all the people he keeps alive and who he feeds who say that he doesn't exist. 
You know, it's such a, just such an interesting example of how much God loves us, you know? You know, the, uh, the Carlina Rebbe used to say that he said, I wish that I could love the most righteous person in the world as much as God loves the most wicked person in the world. Right? Because look at how much love is going into sustaining every single creature. Right? Okay, so now let's get back to this idea. You know, how do I know? How do I know if I'm, if I'm wandering or if I'm on a journey? What does it mean to commit to something? What does it mean to actually try to have an explanation of why there's a world? Like, um, and how does all of that tie together with um, where we're at in the Torah right now? So this Torah portion is really, um, is really exciting because it exposes um, some very kind of fundamental dynamics in the way the Torah itself is written. And of course, we know that the Torah itself is the blueprint of reality. It says God looked into the, that God looked into the Torah and he created the world, that the Torah existed before the world existed. And we've explained that many times, but very simply put, that means that God had a vision for the world before he created the world. So every single Parsha, we know that the Torah is, is um, d- divided into 53 sections. We call those Parshas, right? Portions. And between every single Parsha, there's a unit of white space, right? Before the next Parsha begins. And we know that the Ramban says, and I'm sure he's bringing from earlier sources, that the Torah itself is black fire on white fire. And so, what what does that mean, black fire and white fire? So on a very simple level, it means that there are two dynamics in terms of the existence of reality. There's those aspects which are revealed, and those aspects which exist, but exist in a spiritual way, and so they're not revealed to the naked eye. Okay, so... The black fire, that which is extant, that represents those aspects of reality which are revealed. The white fire, which is the parchment that the Torah is written on, the white fire stands for those things that exist in the spiritual dimensions that are there but that we can't see. So every single parsha, every single portion of the Torah, the weekly portion, has a white space, white fire, which demarcates last week's Parsha from this week's Parsha, except for one Parsha in the entire Torah, and that's what we just read. In this one, it's called Parsha Stuma. All the white space, all the white fire, if you will, has been filled in. Okay? So it goes straight from last week's Parsha to this week's Parsha. Now, now that's very deep on a lot, a lot, a lot of different levels, right? And we'll just be able to just kind of touch on a couple of ideas, but you can really spend a lot of time into this because this is one of those interesting windows into infinity, into just like the meaning of life and everything like that, really like all the deepest stuff, right? But let's just just, just, just touch on it. Um, you see, this the white fire, right? It's all clogged up with the black fire. And 
not coincidentally, this is the Parsha where the exile begins. Right? Where the Jews go into exile. The beginning of the exile of the Egyptian servitude. And it says that Yaakov Avinu wanted to reveal the date of the end of days when Mashiach would come. But that it got all kind of blocked up. Right? So he wasn't able to reveal the time. So that's an aspect of, of it being clogged, of that white space not, not, not being there. Um, let's, let's go deeper. So, so Reb Leibola Eger explains the connection between there being no space between the previous Parsha and, and this week's Parsha and the beginning of exile in the following way. And I heard this from Reb Shlomo uh, in the name of Reb Leibola Eger, but it's always stayed with me because these are one of these, uh, like one of these cash Torahs, right? Meaning to say you have to have them in your pocket at all times, and you have to know them well enough that any moment you can just pull it out. So, so review this, this teaching because this is very important. So Reb Leibola Eger gives a definition for exile. And he says, you know what exile is? He says, it's thinking that because today was like yesterday, tomorrow is going to be like today. Right? Say it again. Exile is thinking that because today was like yesterday, tomorrow is going to be like today. In other words, it's always been like this and it's never going to change. That's, that's the definition of exile. See, because we don't know what tomorrow is going to be. We don't know what one minute from now is going to be. We, we really don't know. We actually don't know. And allowing yourself not to know, that's, that's like a restoration of the white fire. Right? Because the white fire is like a dimension beyond. Like, like you know, I said... I said a moment ago that people have, all of us have a responsibility at this point in our life to be able to say, why was the world created and why am I here? Everyone has a, a basic, basic level of responsibility to be able to offer an answer to that, right? On the other hand, on the other hand though, there's something very liberating and something very redemptive on other questions and other parts of our life to be able to say, I don't know. And, and, and to liberate ourselves from this idea that I have to know. Because there's certain things that we don't know. You know, I, I have a good friend who's uh, going through kind of a, a life crisis right now. And... Um, He's got to make certain decisions. But, but at this point in, in his sort of like kind of transitioning through this stuff, he shouldn't know. He, and he has to allow himself not to know. Because any decision that he's going to make in this very sort of like kind of traumatized place will be a rash de- decision. He might get lucky and guess right, but that's not how we want to go through life, getting lucky and hoping to guess right. We want to be able to make informed, intelligent choices. 
So at this point in his life, he has to allow himself to be able to say, I don't know, right? So there's certain times where we have to know, and there's certain times where we have to not know. And that the not knowing is actually more liberating and more true than the knowing. And other times in our life where we say, if I don't know, that that's just a, a supreme cop-out, and we have to know. You know, I heard Reb Shlomo say one time that one of the reasons why a person needs a Rebbe is because a person has to know when to serve God in secret and when to know when to serve God publicly. Right? Because there are certain times when you should do things in secret, like certain acts of kindness and certain aspects of uh, avodas Hashem, service of God, in secret. And there's certain times when you're supposed to do it publicly, right? Like sometimes, like just to give you one example, sometimes the highest thing is to be able to give tzedakah anonymously, to give charity, bless you, in a secret way. And other times the Talmud says, actually, that you're supposed to have your name on a building because that inspires other very wealthy people to understand, oh, that's what I'm supposed to be doing with my money. So even though that person might be extremely humble and might not want to put their name on a building, nonetheless, the Torah says, in this type of situation, serve God publicly. You know, you want to help, that same person wants to help a friend who's in some trouble, that you can do secretly. So you have to know when to serve God publicly, when to serve God secretly. You hear So there's certain times when you have to know and have an answer, and there's certain times when you're not supposed to have an answer, where you're supposed to tap into another dimension of wisdom to the idea of your own humility and to say, I don't know. And that's the most liberating thing, and that's the most true thing. So so the idea is like this. The white space in the Torah also represents our time to reflect on what's going on in our lives. And actually, Rashi brings that, and, and he says that one of the reasons why there's white spaces in the Torah, now this is not talking about between Parshas, this is talking about within a Parsha. So Rashi brings us at the beginning of Vayikra, and he says that that's when, now remember, Our tradition is that God gave the Torah to Moshe at Mount Sinai, letter by letter, letter by letter, okay? And that there were certain moments where Moshe, like, mind was so blown, where Moshe said, okay, wait, I got to think. And so those white spaces are in the Torah are when Moshe, this is Rashi, I'm, I'm bringing right now, where Moshe said, I have to think, I have to meditate on that, Okay? So from this we see that white spaces in the Torah also mean the ability to absorb what's going on in our lives. So now let's revisit the fact that the beginning of exile starts now and there's no space between the two parshas, between the two portions. You know why? Because one of the aspects of exile, of being in exile, is having no time to process what's going on in our lives. And the Ramchal brings this at the end of next week's Parsha, that when Moshe comes to 
basically take the Jews out of slavery, right? The first thing that Paro does to oppose him is to substantially increase the amount of work and labor that the Jews have to do in order to stop them from thinking and processing where they are in their lives. So a lot of, you know, there's something going on societally right now. You may have seen articles like this. It's like, this is not like a simple little sort of like, oh, human interest story. Technology is getting so crazily efficient. It's increasing our productivity like huge exponentially. So that means, therefore, if I can get my job done so much faster, I should have more free time. A very basic equation, right? If I can do that job three times as fast as I, sh as I did before, I should have, like, I don't know what the math is, two-thirds two more free time, right? Not only are we more efficient than we've ever been and more productive than we've ever been, but now we're working longer hours than we've ever worked. And people are scratching their heads about this and they're writing books about this. How can it be? How can it be that, you know, like I saw some, some uh, it was an Onion headline. You ever read The Onion? It was sort of like, um, and I'm not going to do justice to it because the wording of it was so like, like great, but it was sort of like, um, you know, chilled out boss allows worker to, um, uh, to work from home after six. <laughs> you know, like, like wow I got such a great boss you know like, you know like you would think like you could just you could finish working at 6 right no it's like the, of course you're going to keep on working but I'll let you work from home at that point right so, so all of this is to stop us from processing what's going on this is all designed for us to not be able to concentrate on what's actually going on in the world and with our lives. Um, okay, so so let's let's um, let's let's go a little deeper. Look at the words that are in the white space. So these are the words that shouldn't be there, right? Right. So what words are actually in that place that shouldn't be there? So the first two words of the Parsha are like really, really interesting. It's Vayechi Yaakov. So Vayechi Yaakov means, well, we'll get into it, but what it means is, and Yaakov died. Right? But interestingly, the Talmud says, Yaakov Lomes. Yaakov never died. And if you want to understand what that means on the simplest level, the fact that we're here on a Sunday morning in Los Angeles in 2015 <laughs> means Yaakov Lomes, <laughs> that Yaakov never died. Because otherwise, what are we doing here? What are we doing here talking about Yaakov thousands of years later in the most remote place, in the place that's most antithetical to Torah values, you know, maybe in the world. What, what are we doing here? It shows you that whatever energy that was emitted by our holy fathers and mothers 
it never went away. It has a grip. It has a grip on, 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 on the world itself, on reality itself. So now let's get into this word Vayechi, because it's really interesting. Vayechi means Yechi. You know, well, we'll get up to that in a moment. Well, no, let's say it now. Yechi means it's a command form. It's an imperative, grammatically in Hebrew, which means live. You will live. That's what Yechi means. You will live. So, so what's Vayechi? So how does Vayechi mean, and he died? <laughs> like, what? So, so Vayechi, you have something in Hebrew, which no other language in the entire world has. And it's called, it's a grammatical construct called the reversing Vav. And what that means is, now keep in mind, no other language in the entire world has this grammatical construct. All right? That in itself is like, wow. I mean, there's, that in itself is something to get excited about. But, but, but when you hear the idea, it's like really far out. If you put a vav in, terms, in front of a future tense verb, it turns it into past tense. And if you put a vav in front of a past tense verb, it turns it into future tense. No other language. And of course we say on a mystical level that God created the entire world out of the Hebrew letters. So, so Torah grammar, Torah constructs like this are talking about, you know, like the organization of the building blocks of reality. Right? Because if, if, the, if the energy of the letters is basically informing the fabric of creation... How they're organized is grammar. So how reality becomes organized can be seen through the unique aspects of the, what we call Lashon HaKodesh, the Hebrew language. So, so what does this mean? Well, what I think it means, and this is my own uh, opinion, but it, I think it makes a lot of sense, is that the Torah itself is eternal. And so God created a grammatical construct to keep the Torah in present tense at all times. You see, we have a great... I'm, I'm not communicating yet, but, but let me explain. We have a, a, a foundation which is maisim avo simin labanim, that the deeds of our holy fathers and mothers, that, that what they went through is a sign for future generations, which means... That that which took place long ago, that which is past, is actually a sign for the future. So that when you're reading the Torah, you're not reading about ancient events. You're reading about things that actually did happen long ago. But at the same time, you're giving, given a roadmap for what's going to happen and how we're supposed to proceed with our lives. So God had to come up with a grammatical construct which fits the past also being the future and the future also being the past. And he came up with it in the form of this reversing love. Which means that there's this grammatical zone that the Torah lives in which keeps it the ever-present present tense. 
That's a neat trick. <laughs> so now, what in the beginning of exile? What's clogging up the exile? What's being revealed in this exile, so to speak? Is these words, Vayechi Yaakov. So technically what it's saying is, and Yaakov died, which is true, right? On the most base physical level, it's true. And yet at the same time, it's this reversing vav, which if you strip away that vav, it's like, Yaakov live! Yaakov will live! It's telling you what's, what's really going to happen. Right? But at the same time, it's appearing in this, in this way of, oh, it's, it's over. But it's not over. So, so, I want to share one more thing from this Parsha, and we'll wrap it up. Uh, is, is this moment, and we were talking about it a little bit yesterday, this moment in the Torah, which to me is a very heartbreaking moment, where Yosef presents his two children, Ephraim and Menashe, to, to Yaakov Avinu, who's really kind of at the end at this point, and he's bringing his two children for Yaakov to bless before he dies. And he puts the older one on the, so that Yaakov can put his right hand on the older one, and the younger one, so that Yaakov can put his left hand on the, on the younger one. But what Yaakov Avinu does is he reverses his hands so that he puts his right hand on the younger one and his left hand on the older one. And Yosef gets really upset by this. Right? And Yosef takes the hands of Yaakov and he tries to rearrange them. Right? Which is like, if you think about it, it's like, it's, it's heavy, you know? It's like, you know, you're... It's like one of the holiest people that ever lived, or maybe, I don't know, arguably the holiest person that ever lived. And you're like grabbing his hands and like switching them around and telling him how to, you know, and if you think about it, like think about the, the, the blessing that, that, that Yitzchak gives to, 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 to Yaakov and Esav, right? Like they, they, that got kind of switched around, right? And then all the trauma that the brothers go through because Yosef was, you know, kind of considered like the choice from the tribe and then that created all sorts of hostility among his brothers and they, they wanted to kill him and all the rest. And now finally, Yosef gets to this place where through this, you know, amazing sort of like series of events, he finally gets the brothers to do tshuva for selling them and the brothers have now come together and sort of like everything seemingly is in a good place right now and now what's Yaakov doing? He's starting up again. He's elevating the younger over the, over the older and putting the older beneath the younger. And Yosef is literally grabbing his hands and trying to switch it around. And Yaakov's like, it's okay, I know what I'm doing. And Yosef backs off. And to me, what that's saying is, and this is the, the heartbreaking aspect of it, to me, what that's saying is, Yosef's saying, please, let's, let's make the world into a normal place again, where things proceed in the normal order, right? Let's try to 
reshape reality, if you will, get it back on track so that the rational mind can grasp the events of history and of our own lives and we can make sense out of things, you know, so that there's a normalcy and an order that's being restored. And Yaakov tells him something way deeper, which is that, no, that's not life. (laughs) That's not what it is. There's just going to be surprises and surprises and surprises. And you're never going to know. You're never going to know. And if you want to rejigger the DNA of reality or whatever it is you're trying to do, Yosef, right now, this is not this world. That's not this world. This world has curveballs and surprises and booby traps and all sorts of things. And that's what it is. Right? And we just have to keep on going. And, uh, and so I just conclude by just kind of how we started. Just the idea is challenge yourself to have a working answer. And it doesn't mean that, right? What does it mean? What does the Kutzka Rebbe say? What does it mean to grow old? It means that you reach a certain place in your life where you decided, you know what? I got it down. I've arrived, right? And you know, we always say that the greatest proof that you haven't arrived is thinking that you have arrived, right? And to allow ourselves not to know when that's the deeper truth, because it's like Yaakov is telling Yosef, we don't know. You don't, we, don't, we, we don't know what's going to happen next. We don't know. But on the other hand, to actually have an answer, even if it's an answer that you're not proud of, which is, hey, you know what? This world happened by accident, and I'm here for myself. If that is what you believe, say that that's what you believe and then work from there. You can revise it. You can revise it. Right? But to have an answer of why there's a world and what you're doing in it and to start from there. And that way, all of us can actually really be on a journey instead of just wandering around masquerading that we're on a journey. Right? And in that way, we can have an envision, we can have a vision that informs our lives so that when the little, when, not the little, but the hopefully little, but when the obstacles and the, and, and the adversity and the challenges come and they knock against us, that they actually create this hammered out, beautiful version of our vision as opposed to just turning us into scrap metal. Okay. Yeah. I just want to share one more thought. Um, I was wondering why, it, if the Torah achieves the eternal present tense, the, the ever-present present, with this, with this letter Vav, like why with the letter Vav? Hashem could have picked any letter to put in front of a word to make the past tense, future tense, and the future tense, past tense, and to achieve this, um, this, this ongoing eternal um, present tense, internal, eternal relevance of the Torah. But why the letter Vav? 
So um, I want to suggest the following, that, um, you know, the letter Vav, um, in, in the name of Hashem, Yud Ke Vav Ke, that that letter Vav uh, connects this dimension um, with, the, with the upper realms. And um, as Rav Yitzhak Isaac Haver explains, the, the higher realms um, are above time. See, we have a, when we say eternity in Torah, we're not talking about um, on and on and on and on within the presence of time. We're talking about that sphere which exists beyond time. And so that sphere which exists beyond time, we know that all of the promises of Hashem have already been fulfilled because from Hashem's point of view, the future has already taken place because God is beyond time. He's within this dimension, so he's with us, but he's also simultaneously beyond us in dimensions where all of his promises has, have already become true. So Mashiach has already taken place. Every All of his promises have come true already. Um, so it makes sense that the letter Vav, which is that connection between this realm in the Yudke Vavke, this this dimension and the higher dimensions which exist beyond time, that that letter Vav would be the link between this sphere and um, where where promises haven't necessarily been realized, and the sphere where everything that God has promised has already taken place.